You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Oh, boy. That was one of the worst days in my professional career in terms of watching the behavior in exchange. We didn't have any meaningful position in nickel at all. I'm not sure we traded a single contract that day. I just, I don't know. It wasn't material to us. But to see an exchange close and then cancel hours worth of activity was just utterly, just, just incomprehensibly wrong. I'm Francine Lacroix in the London studio. And I'm David Merritt, also in the London studio. This is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the stories, the heart of the city of London. And this week, Dave, we revisit the nickel squeeze back in March that threatened London's place at the heart of the metals trade. Now, for centuries, the London Metal Exchange has been the home of global benchmark prices for the world's key industrial metals. Right, but those chaotic 18 minutes back in March that sent nickel prices soaring They have put the LME's status as a key City of London institution in doubt. There are now questions being raised about its structure, its ownership, and in fact, its future. There are lawsuits piling up and market experts forecasting a mass exodus of LME members down the road. So joining us in the studio today is Bloomberg's Jack Farchi, who covers energy and commodities. Hi, Jack. Hello. So, Jack, are you able to give us, first of all, a rough history lesson, right? So help us understand how it started. It's one of the biggest exchanges in the world, certainly when it comes to metals. The history of the London Metal Exchange dates back to maybe the early 19th century when they used to gather in coffee shops around here in the city of London. They'd draw a circle in the floor in sawdust and then they'd all gather around the circle and start trading metals with one another. That became more formalised in 1877 when the London Metal Exchange was established. It's still with us today, even though the UK is a rounding error in the global manufacturing uh, economy now, but the London Metal Exchange is still where the world's prices of metals are That was what I was going to ask you, Jack. You know, we're no longer that important industrial nation. So why does London continue to set global prices for metals? London is, is still a key financial hub for the world. And then the other part is history. You know, I mean, there are lots of people who would love to establish metals exchanges to be the benchmark place for metals to be traded. But 
everyone's contracts have LME prices in them, and that's very, very hard to change as long as you know people are broadly happy to continue using the system that they know, which is the LME. It's pretty hard to rip up hundreds of years of tradition and history and contracts, many of them that last 10, 20, 15, 20 years, uh, and suddenly switch it all over to a, a new way of pricing metals. Jack, some of the history around it, I mean, it's pretty, some of the rules actually are pretty archaic. I think you could drink what in the pit until, until three years ago, four years ago. Well, the LME only formally banned traders from drinking during the the working day. Yes, I mean it's it's one of the things. But they that, weren't drinking, were they? I mean, is it cruel or were they? <laughs> well, I think it's possible that people might have gone out to lunch and had a few drinks and come back and and traded in in some cases, probably not in most cases. Well, I know from from some of the old timers that it, it used to be the case that uh, everyone would smoke in the ring, and there was an enormous ashtray in the middle of the ring that they'd all flick their butts into this ashtray in the middle while shouting and making hand signals and trading copper. And, uh, tin and I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? The image of the ring is 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 so iconic, isn't it? This a crowd of shouting traders, totally incomprehensible, really. Um, and as you say, maybe with a ciggy on as well at the same or a cigar. time. <laughs> red seats or green seats? Red seats. Red, red leather. A red leather bench, uh, which you're, and so one of the archaic rules, which is which still exists, you're not allowed to stand up. You've got to keep. Not, not, yeah, one foot grounded <laughs> to the bench at all times. And if you don't, you, you get fined. And obviously they shut down the ring throughout COVID, obviously standing around and shouting at each other, not particularly COVID secure. But now it's back, isn't it? And there's been a debate about whether you even need this physical ring. But what's so good about it? Why do traders still like to use that as a way of transacting? Part of it is because of the three-month uh, contract, though instead of having each month having a contract, the LME has each day has a contract, and then the benchmark price, this three month, changes every single day. So today it's the contract for three months time, but tomorrow it'll be one day later. And that creates this huge matrix of contracts that are quite complicated, and all the banks and brokers are always trading positions in between these different contracts. They argue that's pretty hard to achieve on a computer screen and it's best done in the ring. Not everyone agrees by, by any means, but this is a debate that has been going on in the LME for longer than I've been covering it, certainly. There's always one camp that says, let's get rid of the ring, and one camp that says, no, it's necessary. And so far, the argument has been made and the LME has been listening to it that is that, that the ring works and, and people like it, and, and so it's uh, it's still with us. I mean, how's it possible? I mean, they, they've had actually you know certain, I guess, events that threaten the status through the years, but there's not a real viable rival to the LME. Well, their biggest rival is the CME, formerly COMEX in, in the US. Um, Chicago. Chicago, yeah. But they only have really a copper contract. So that's a big rival for the LME in copper, but it's a pretty North American, US-focused contract. They're certainly trying to bring new contracts. They've got an aluminium contract now that's global, but it's you know a rounding error compared to the LME's aluminium contract. And the other big rival is the Shanghai Futures Exchange, which does a lot of volume in metals and is one of the big trades, is people arbitraging between the price in Shanghai and the price in the LME. But that's onshore in China, and so it's not accessible to all global traders, and that's a real barrier to it becoming the global benchmark contract, I think. So bring us back to those famous 18 minutes in March where nickel went crazy. That's been a huge story today too, watching the LME actually stop trading for, for nickel 
as it skyrocketed 250% over the course of two days. I mean, that's unbelievable. You had that massive surge in nickel prices that prompted a halt in trading on the LME. I've covered nickel now for uh, seven years. I've just never seen anything like this. You had at one point nickel rise by 90% just today. You know, we had a price that was in uh, the range of ten dollars to $20,000 for a decade. And then suddenly in the space of one and a half days, it went from just over $20,000 to $100,000. That's not something in anyone's model, and, it's, and, it, and, it, and it more or less broke the market. We had a situation where the biggest company in the global nickel industry, a company called Tsingshan, also the biggest stainless steel maker, stainless steel being one of the main uses for nickel, along with batteries for electric vehicles, they had built up this big short position in LME Nickel. Essentially, they'd sold futures contracts, betting that prices would go down. They'd done that over the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, thinking that there was going to be lots of production coming from Indonesia, uh, and that would push prices down. Instead, car companies, battery companies were getting excited about the electric vehicle revolution, buying lots of nickel, and, and the world was worrying about Russia. And particularly after Russia invaded Ukraine, there were lots of concerns that Russia, that nickel coming out of Russia might be, and commodities in general coming out of Russia, but particularly nickel, would be disrupted. So Norilsk Nickel, Russia's big mining company, is one of the biggest nickel producers in the world and crucially a really big supplier of nickel metal, which is the type mm. that you can deliver on the LME. And so the price of nickel was picking up. At some point on March the 7th, Monday, Singshan stopped being able to pay its margin to its brokers. So, you know, if you have a short position, you've bet against the price and prices go up. Your broker at some point gives you a call and says, hey, if you want to keep this position, you need to give us some more money. At some point, Tsingshan stopped being able to find the more money. At that point, things went a bit crazy. The price on that day, March the 7th, Monday, went from uh, about $30,000 to about $50,000 a tonne. And until that point, nickel had traded for 10 years in a range of ten dollars to $20,000 a tonne. And then the market reopened overnight on March the 8th, and prices really went crazy. So in this 18-minute period, around 6 a.m. on March the 8th, prices went from just about $50,000 all the way up to $101,000. I mean, how long have you been covering metals? Have you uh, ever seen over anything a decade. like it? No, nothing like it. I don't think I've seen anything like it in any commodity market, to be honest with you. It was the enemy's auctions after that huge spike, wasn't it, that have really caused the biggest concern? So the price hit this uh, record high of $101,000, then came down to about $80,000. And at that point, uh, that is now about 8.15 in the morning on March the 8th, the LME suspended trading. And then crucially, they cancelled all of the trades that had happened on that day on March the 8th, about 4 billion of them, we estimate. And so took the price back to where it had closed the previous day, which is $48,000. The effect of that was to say to all of those people who had short positions, which was, you know, Tsingshan was the main one. and. As a result, Tsingshan's banks and, and brokers, but also lots of other companies involved in the in the world of uh, nickel trading, that you wouldn't need to make your margin calls on the basis of $80,000 or $100,000 nickel, but you could do it on the basis of $48,000 nickel. So it was a big bailout, essentially, for anyone who had a short position, and consequently anyone who had a long position was, was pretty cross. So traders went mental, really, because they could have made money, right? And they put a position to make money, and then effectively the LME cancelled it. Yeah, I mean, there's been this huge backlash, particularly, I think, from the kind of US fund world. Some of them I don't haven't even lost a huge amount of money here. So, I mean, there are lots of ways you could lose money, right? You could have had a long position, yeah. been betting on nickel price going up. You thought it was $100,000, maybe you sold some contracts at $100,000 and then the LME tore up that sale. Or maybe you were arbitraging between two different prices. You know, you had a trade going short nickel and long zinc or something and then 
the nickel price got torn up. What's crazy, actually, in all of it, was that the Chinese nickel tycoon, who was effectively almost bailed out, kept on saying, no, no, I'm holding on to their short position, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that has been the great the great story and the thing that has infuriated some of these hedge funds watching on from the sidelines is that, you know, I mean, the LME says that they intervened in the market not to bail out Tsingshan and its owner, Xiang Wangna, but to bail out everyone else in the market who was at risk of going, including in, in particular, you know, some of the smaller brokers who had clients who weren't paying their margin and who would have gone bust if the price had been 80000 or $100,000, and certainly if it had been higher. But the, this drama that played out was, in effect, the LME bailed out Tsingshan and Shang Wanda and, and all of its banks, led by JP Morgan, um, but also Standard Chartered, BNP Paribas. And, and meanwhile, he has got out of it, essentially. So over the past three or four months, he's largely got out of his short position mm-hmm. at prices much lower than the 50,000 where the market was stopped and certainly much lower than the 80 or 100,000 where the market went to before the trades were cancelled, making a little loss, but not a very significant loss. Meanwhile, you know, the likes of Elliot are saying that they've lost half a billion dollars on because of the LME's actions. Yeah, I remember actually speaking to a hedge fund at the time and we didn't put him on air because he was, I mean, there were a lot of expletives. <laughs> there are a lot of expletives that cannot be repeated on the podcast. <laughs> so real anger, right? Well, you had amongst... a great interview front scene uh, with Ken Griffin where he said this was one of the worst things he'd ever seen in his career. You, you just you cannot do that in a market that is integrated with other markets. You know, what if you traded on the exchange then had a back-to-back over-the-counter contract? What if you were a producer selling your production forward and, and now all of a sudden you find that you didn't hedge? I mean, there's all kinds of adverse consequences that come from exchanges changing the rules of the road after the fact. Yeah, because it puts in question actually what they'll do next time around. There was a great an article published by uh, a fund called Transtrend, which is one of the big algorithmic funds trading metals. And they said this was effectively the LME seems to have manipulated the market price down. Uh, and the moment we realized what was happening, we felt we could no longer entrust the LME with our clients' money. Um, that's wow. how a lot of funds saw it. And that's why it's such a big deal for, for the LME. And now we're seeing lawsuits as well, right? People yeah. So we've had Elliott, you know, one of the biggest uh, hedge funds in the world. Paul Singer's Elliott Investment Management is seeking $456 million in damages from the LME. It follows. And also Jane Street, a big arbitrager, have filed lawsuits or have filed this, uh, this thing called ju- judicial review, uh, challenging the LME's actions and, and seeking about half a billion dollars from them. At the time, Jack, we actually thought that the chief executive would go of the LME. And we probably thought that a lot of the contracts or a lot of the money making would move elsewhere. It hasn't really. Well, the amount of trading on the LME has come down. Significantly? Uh, I mean, in nickel, very significantly. So the nickel volumes are down about a third since since all this blew up. Open interest is also at the lowest in about 10 years. So the nickel contract is definitely wounded. The rest of the LME has also seen a reduction, but not, as, not a very dramatic reduction in, in volume and open interest. I think the key issue is the one that I said right at the beginning of this conversation. There aren't very many alternatives. You know, if you want to trade a nickel derivatives contract. There's a contract in Shanghai, but if you're uh, an international trader, that's not really accessible to you. And so what do you do? You know, you can have a fixed price. You can you can decide, you know, if you're a, a nickel miner, you can sell it to your customer at a fixed price and say, okay, let's just call it $25,000 a ton. But people but, don't like doing that. They're used to having a floating price and hedging their risk. And so, and that's, so that's in, what the LME is for. But Jack, that's in the immediate term. I mean, are some of these other platforms abroad, be it Shanghai or New York or Chicago, not building platforms to rival the LME after this? I mean, can you just call it a huge mistake? I think they would like to, but uh, the reality of building building a contract as an exchange that has 
that critical mass, the, the key things that people care about when they're trading futures contracts is liquidity, is the ability to get out of it. I mean, yes, absolutely, is whether they trust the exchange to honour their contract or not. But if there is no alternative that has good liquidity and volume, there's certainly lots of people around who would like a new contract to trade, but it's not so straightforward to suddenly click your fingers and make it happen. And, and the boss, the CEO of the LME, Matthew Chamberlain, he's been there about five years. I mean, ultimately, has he taken responsibility for all of this turmoil? But he's still in his job, right? He has, and he is. We are absolutely mindful of the impact that this had had on so many people uh, and we need to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Um, He was due to leave in fact. He announced his departure in January this year before all of this happened. He was due to leave at the end of April but instead the LME's owners which is Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, the Hong Kong Exchange, asked him to stay on and he's now staying on indefinitely as CEO in order to so in fact, clean up the mess and to kind so of So in fact rather that. than rather than leaving he's actually he's actually renewed his contract yeah. and he's staying on and he's in he's disputing these these lawsuits against him i think the um, hong kong exchanges and clearing have said in a statement the LME management is of the view that the claims are without merit and that the LME is going to contest these vigorously what chances have they got of winning well, it's an interesting one. Uh, the LME is a, a kind of a slightly we- weird legal legal situation where the LME is considered legally as, as an, an arm of the UK government because it performs this regulatory function over the market. Uh, and so the way to sue the LME, at least that people have done in the past and had success in the limited instances where that's happened, is this process called judicial review. And really that focuses on how the LME took the decisions, not really the rights and wrongs of what the decision was, but whether they followed the proper process according to their procedures when they took the decisions. So we'll see. The LME says, of course, that they did follow the proper process. Their rule book allows them to do pretty much whatever they like. If the LME considers that the market is disorderly or is at risk of becoming disorderly or anything like that, they can take whatever actions they think are necessary in order to to resolve the situation. So we'll see what comes out when when if we get to the point where we start seeing how the LME's decision making process you know in the minutiae of it the meetings of the special committees and boards and the minutes of those what went into their decision making process but i think that the assumption has got to be that they followed their procedures. Um, maybe not. You know, Roussel uh, took them to judicial review in 2014, I think, and and was initially successful. So it's possible, but I, I think it's a long shot. Is there long-lasting and irreversible damage to the reputation both of the LME and their prospects, but also for the City of London as a whole? Yes, I think there is. I mean, I think the short answer is the LME. You know, for 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 as long as I've been covering it. Uh, and certainly since it was bought by the Hong Kong Exchange in 2012, has been trying to woo these financial investors, particularly you know big US funds, and persuade them to join the, the physical market participants, the likes of Tsingshan, the big mining companies, the traders, the manufacturers in trading on the LME, to boost volumes, to make the LME more profitable as a, as a business. That's going to be an extremely hard argument to win now that they're all so furious with the LME. Uh, and it's going to be very hard to persuade them to trust the LME again with its current ownership and its current governance structure. I mean, and you've seen, uh, you know, people like the IMF, no less, have been calling for reform of the LME's governance structure. I think it's a big issue. I don't see an easy way out of it. The LME has put in place already a number of reforms to try and prevent something like this happening again. But the key question as it relates to how the LME got itself into this situation and the lack of trust in the people making the decisions, which now all of these hedge funds feel, that's hard to resolve without 
without a meaningful change, without probably changing the whole governance structure and pay possibly the ownership, which so far at least people haven't been talking about. Hong Kong exchanges hasn't been hasn't uh-huh. hasn't suggested that they're that they're interested or willing to sell. Jack, how do you tell the professionals with the wannabes? London Metal Exchange, London Metals Exchange. That's a no-no. It's the London Metal <laughs> Exchange. Anyone who calls it the London Metals Exchange does not know the metals markets. Literally, Jack Jack said, if you call it metals, yeah, I will walk out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank you. Jack. I'm David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacroix. That's it for this week's episode of In the City. We will be back next week. And in the meantime, if you like the show, please rate it and check out the Bloomberg UK website for more news and views. Special thanks to our guest, Jack Farchi. This episode was produced by Summer Saadi and Zaid Hussain.